what strikes me so much about the current pandemic is this tremendous division between people who believe that it's a serious health crisis that's killing thousands of people and people who either seem to think that it's over or who, who think that it's a hoax or exaggerated by media. I mean, there's such a fragmentation and a division between the two groups in a way that I've never seen in, in historical epidemics. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org slash podcast. Smallpox, typhoid, yellow fever. Long before the coronavirus, these were the diseases that ravaged America from the 18th century through to the 20th. Journalists covered the outbreaks as they themselves suffered the impact, and their reporting revealed the political and religious beliefs of the time. They helped construct heroes and villains. They brought attention to the need for infrastructure improvements. And they fueled campaigns that led to healthier habits. In this timely episode of the Journalism History Podcast, you'll hear from Katie Foss, a professor of journalism and strategic media at Middle Tennessee State University, and the author of the upcoming book, Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory. So welcome, Katie, to the Journalism History Podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course, we're here today to discuss some of your perspectives on the ongoing pandemic based on the research that you did for your book that's coming out in September 2020, Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory. And your book describes how the news media is central to how an outbreak is framed and understood. And that's more than just information about pathogens, as you describe. It's shaped through prejudices, political agendas, and religious beliefs. So if I can ask just to start off, what drew you to this topic? Actually, it was a work of fiction that inspired my book. I was reading uh, Lori House Anderson's Fever 1793, which is actually a young adult fiction uh, with my daughter at the time. And she did such a fantastic job telling this fictional story Uh, using primary documents from the actual yellow fever epidemic of 1793, that it really got me interested in how primary documents can really tell us at least what the public was finding out during epidemics of of different moments, uh, thus inspiring my book. You referenced the yellow fever epidemic in 1793, which happened in Philadelphia. I know your book also covers another epidemic in the 18th century in Boston. Can you give us a sense of what happened in those cities during those epidemics? Sure. So uh, the Boston epidemic was in 1721, and that was actually smallpox uh, that really took over the town. Uh, What was really interesting to me about the smallpox epidemic, not only is it one of the first epidemics uh, that's really been documented Uh, in colonial America, Uh, but it's also an epidemic that spurred a new newspaper. Uh, James Curran's um, 
newspaper came about because he was looking for a way for an outlet in order to uh, really fight inoculation, the practice of deliberately infecting yourself with smallpox so that you don't get a more serious case of smallpox. And he was so against the practice that he started uh, the New England Current that, uh, and, uh, and then used his newspaper throughout the epidemic to write against this practice. So I thought that was really interesting, uh, which is a different epidemic than 1793 was yellow fever. And yellow fever is really interesting because it was so well documented. In fact, I think it's one of the best documented epidemics in history, uh, even though it was more than 200 years ago. So I was really interested in how this story was told, both through the one newspaper that continued throughout the Federal Gazette, uh, as well as diary entries of several townspeople of the time, uh, covered in pamphlets at the time and then afterwards. Uh, so we have a lot of different perspectives of this epidemic, even though it was so long ago. Certainly. Uh, and now... I know you've recently been called upon to probably offer your perspective, uh, given how timely your research is. You wrote a piece that was published online April 1st for the Smithsonian Magazine entitled, How Epidemics of the Past Have Changed the Ways Americans Live. And you wrote how outbreaks such as tuberculosis, typhoid, cholera sparked health campaigns that led to infrastructure improvements mm -hmm. and healthy behaviors, a lot of which we now seem as normal today. So what were some of those infrastructure improvements and behaviors that resulted from previous outbreaks? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's really interesting how a crisis really can be the spark that, that creates a lot of different changes. Uh, and I would say a, a lot of my, my focus in that article was on tuberculosis because tuberculosis uh, and cholera, I would say, are the two that had the most profound impact on on public health, uh, both in the timing and the realization of how they were transmitted, how the diseases were transmitted, but also in uh, kind of the shift from, uh, you know, um, I would say the shift to embracing the germ theory, right? So we can think about the cleanup of both the waterways as well as the cleanup of the streets as two major developments that happened because of this recognition that uh, you know certain diseases are contagious and can make us sick and there are ways that we can prevent diseases on a macro level uh, and not just um, by individuals uh, adopting more healthy behaviors. Well, and as you talk about this health campaigns, these infrastructure improvements and so forth, what is the role in the news media in propagating some of what government officials are saying about this or how does the role of the press come involved here? So the press plays significant roles in, in several different ways. One is just informing the people of these different campaigns, that these are going on, that they're being launched, um, you know, paired with interviews with public health authorities of the time to really bolster the, the credibility of the campaigns. But they're also very much used to persuade people to embrace new uh, healthy behaviors. Uh, and also to embrace what authorities were doing at the time. So we can think about, for example, with tuberculosis, the growing realization that tuberculosis was contagious uh, launched these major health campaigns as part of this war on tuberculosis. Uh, and part of that was just uh, getting people to kind of welcome authorities into their homes, especially, unfortunately, the tenements and, and other kind of lower class dwellings. Uh, and also, uh, you know, seek out public health authorities or, or seek out doctors when they're feeling sick. And that was a shift, too, to just get people to do less treating at home and more kind of seeking care outside of the home, uh, especially when we talk about across socioeconomic classes. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and in your piece for the Smithsonian, you begin it by describing how the New York City Health Department launched a campaign in the 1890s known as the War on Tuberculosis, and it discouraged cup sharing and prompted mm-hmm. states to ban spitting in public spaces. I know you mentioned buildings and public transit. So what was the role of the media maybe in that campaign in particular? Oh, so the media had several different roles um, in that campaign. Like I said, first is alerting people that hate tuberculosis is contagious because they thought it was hereditary. And that was a belief that actually lasted several decades after uh, scientists confirmed that it was in fact contagious. Uh, then also uh, just these massive campaigns that were both uh, textual and visual to convince people not to spit in public. Uh, that was a big one, uh, which is pretty interesting to me since we don't think about that, that you'd have to tell people not to spit in public or to share cups with strangers. But that very much was part of the campaign. So we saw a lot of different um, in drawings as well as text uh, very simply and directly telling people not to do these behaviors that would increase the spread of tuberculosis. Uh, and it wasn't just about uh, like news. It was also in posters. Uh, a little bit later on, Thomas Edison and, and his company was hired to create a series of films, of silent films, to convince people to adopt more healthy behavior. So it's interesting how it definitely crossed media platforms in not only informing people on how to change behavior, but persuading people that they needed to adopt more healthy behaviors. And in your research, I kind of am just wondering here how the journalism may have changed with time, because what we're seeing right now, the onslaught of negative news can drive away readers, listeners, Mm -hmm. and viewers. People say, I just can't deal with it anymore. It's bad for my Mm -hmm. mental health. And so this is just me wondering here, and I'd love to hear what you have to say as an expert on this, since news is a business, and if Mm -hmm. they see that ratings are declining, newspapers are not selling as many copies and so forth, do news organizations respond and maybe they're tempted to offer a rosier prediction of casualties Mm -hmm. during an epidemic, for example, or they run positive features about how doctors are helping the search for a cure. Uh, How do journalists kind of respond to make sure that they are at once giving information that people need, but also uh, maybe keeping them as customers? Oh, they very much write to their particular audiences. And we can see this in a lot of, uh, in a few different ways. So we can see this if we compare local media coverage of a very localized epidemic compared to national coverage of the same epidemic. Uh, for example, diphtheria in Nome, Alaska in 1925 was heavily covered by both local and national media because of the use of dogs to deliver the diphtheria antiserum. And if we look at the local coverage, it's much more positive than kind of the, what they called the outside media coverage, which painted a very dire picture of what would happen to the people of Nome if they didn't get this antiserum. So, uh, and, and it's interesting because with that one, it was actually the mayor of the town in, who also owned and ran the newspaper. So he was writing the stories for his own town uh, and, and said, don't worry, help us on the way, we'll get this anti-serum, versus the coverage in Fairbanks, Alaska, which said, save the people of Nome, they're going to die unless we come to the rescue. So it's really interesting, we see local versus national coverage, um, but we also see uh, kind of this unfolding of the epidemic that across time, we see parallels in how epidemics are covered, and, and even like uh, across the course of a particular epidemic in which There's a a delay between the onset of an epidemic, the rise of cases, and the covering of the epidemic itself, and and of course, reluctance to call something an epidemic. Uh, But then, of course, 
as it nears its peak, the coverage becomes um, very dark, uh, very much in crisis mode, which I think we've seen now too. Uh, but then before it reaches peak or, or slightly after, but cases are still building, we do start to see kind of this relief narrative, this promise that things are getting better, the light at the end of, uh, end of the tunnel, even if the reality was at the moment that they hadn't reached the peak yet. So in, in various moments, I mean, it's really interesting that some of the things that I saw in these epidemics in 1793 and in 1918 and in 1952, we're seeing now. Uh, that optimism, I think that as, you, as you've said, to, to try to keep that customer, but also just to try to, I think, offer some hope to the public in a very dark time. Well, and journalists are people too, right? So they're mm -hmm. living, they're experiencing this news event. And I wonder if that was part of your uh, research too, or just something that you kind of have pondered because mm -hmm. the same people that are covering this are having to deal with the daily repercussions of maybe they're fearing for their own jobs. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're getting sick or they're losing loved ones. They're living in cities where everything has changed. So mm -hmm. do you have any sense of how this affected the journalists themselves and maybe then how that colored their coverage? Oh, absolutely. They definitely had, the journalists of these different time periods definitely had a stake in in what was happening to their own towns. Uh, so we can think about like, uh, uh, you know, obviously in 1721, people weren't defined journalists or trained journalists in any way. Uh, either you owned and, and wrote for your own paper or you had different people and kind of influential, important people in town contribute pieces. So we can think about, for example, the Reverend Cotton Mather was a very, very big uh, proponent of this practice of inoculation and wrote quite a few pieces uh, and that were published in the local newspapers uh, to oppose James Franklin's, you know, anti-inoculation pieces, uh, very much had a, a great stake in it. I mean, he even had his own family uh, inoculated. So as he's writing about why we need to practice this and using the paper to convince other people to practice inoculation, he's also having his own children inoculated. Uh, you know, in, in different moments in time, we also see this where they very much, these journalists were very much also townspeople, also citizens, also participants in their own public that they're writing for. Uh, Andrew Brown, uh, in a similar way, writing uh, in 1793, you know, was facing a paper shortage. He reached a point where he had to reduce his paper, the only paper still printing, uh, to only a couple pages because he couldn't access paper. Uh, so it is interesting about how their lives are affecting it. it. Even though we don't get a direct narrative about how that happens, you can see it in the way that the story unfolds and what the paper looks like at different moments. Well, and during the current pandemic, we've seen a lot of first-person stories written by journalists who maybe have contracted the virus or just mm -hmm. have described how their lives have changed. So it sounds like you're saying maybe there wasn't a lot of that sort of first-person uh, in the journalism, or did you see that at all in some of these previous outbreaks? I really didn't see that directly where they said, they went up and went and said, I am sick and here's my experience. Uh, and I wonder if some of that was just that the way that they wrote this, you know, how uh, styles have changed, obviously, over time. But I also wonder, for some of these diseases, how difficult it might have been to continue writing. For example, if you have smallpox, you're probably not going to write. George Washington didn't even write for three weeks when he had smallpox. Uh, or yellow fever, the same thing, just that it was so severe, it would have been difficult to continue producing. Now, if we want to look at tuberculosis, that's a different story because it's a chronic condition. So we definitely have 
many people who wrote about their experiences uh, either directly or uh, kind of indirectly through, and we can think about the number of fiction writers who incorporated their own experiences into the stories that they told. Hmm, very interesting there. Uh, you were talking before also the difference between maybe the way a certain outbreak was covered in a community versus another outside community covering one in a different place. Do you get any sense of foreign coverage? Was there any international coverage that you may have looked at of how they then reflected on what was going on in the United States? Uh, and only through secondary sources, since all of the epidemics that I studied were, before, were 1952 and earlier, I really just focused on uh, actually the local perspective uh, and then a little bit of the national coverage. Sure. Um, I do wonder, again, even right now, how things are different. Mm -hmm. For example, for me, uh, living in New York City, which has been oh, a geez. epicenter, right, of the yeah. pandemic, um, compared to people living in more rural communities, um, mm -hmm. suburban places where maybe it hasn't hit the same. Um, we all have our own challenges, but I imagine that mm -hmm. a lot of that coverage would vary widely, um, even from a big city newspaper to a smaller weekly oh, paper absolutely. in, in yeah. some community. Yeah. Or here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, things are covered very differently at the local and state levels than they are in the New York Times and other national coverage. Certainly. Uh, well, this is kind of something that interests me a lot, as I do live in New York, and we are home to Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has gotten a lot of media attention lately. So I'm curious what you kind of think here about the media darlings that emerge during mm -hmm. pandemics or epidemics. Uh, one of the first that we had in this pandemic was Dr. Anthony Fauci, mm -hmm. who is the infectious disease expert who appeared alongside President Trump and made multiple cable news appearances. And then women started to say, oh, he's attractive or his confidence or his intellect is something that is attractive. Now, we've also seen people on the other side maybe cast some doubt on him mm -hmm. and he becomes an enemy in some narratives. Uh, as I mentioned, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo has had daily updates on his state's response to the coronavirus that's broadcast live on social media and on cable news. Mm -hmm. And he's also won over a lot of people. And I saw this one Marie Claire story that was just posted on May 6th titled, So is Andrew Cuomo single or what? <laughs> um, because apparently women are kind of uh, interested in him. And the answer is that it seems like he is single. Uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, has also gotten some attention on the West Coast and throughout the nation. And I'm sure in a lot of local markets where our listeners reside, there have been mayors and council members, county executives who've mm -hmm. earned a lot of press attention. So what is your kind of impression about the creation of these media darlings who emerge during outbreaks? So it absolutely happens in, in every epidemic. I, although I will say the historical ones that I've studied, they said nothing about the appearance of the uh, <laughs> or attractiveness or they, they really didn't care if, uh, for example, Dr. Benjamin Rush was single or not. Uh, but we absolutely see this hero narrative. And I think that's one thing that, that gets readers and, and uh, consumers through is uh, these people that they believe can lead them through this experience and, and get them out on the, on the other side uh, successfully. I mean, every outbreak, I think, has its heroes and its villains. It, it just kind of what the story is changes a little bit depending on where and what we're talking about. Did you see with some of those villains, are there cases where maybe readers, the public is turning against doctors who are giving information um, that they just don't like, even if it may be accurate? Um, 
Not as much because uh, with the epidemics that I studied, I certainly started before kind of medicine became this celebrated, you know, heroic profession. Uh, but in the midst of an epidemic, doctors are heroes. Uh, and even if they're saying conflicting information, and even if later on they're uh, you know, kind of discredited for what they said. For example, I, I mentioned Benjamin Rush just because he really was the hero of the 1793 epidemic. So later on, uh, he actually lost a lot of credibility with other physicians because he was so big on his own treatments. Uh, and now we know a lot of them were really dangerous, like excessive bloodletting. Um, but during the epidemic, I, he was absolutely uh, just championed as, uh, you know, someone who could do no wrong, someone whose opinion that most people were uh, completely embracing. Again, at the same time, there were other physicians who were saying uh, the complete opposite in, in their advice. But in, in the moment, uh, you don't see a lot of backlash in the way that we do now. Uh, even if the treatments now seem absolutely um, crazy for the moment, that um, in the moment, uh, or just, you know, we, we probably even knew better in the moment. For example, in 1918, a number of grocers started saying that their onions would cure influenza. And I'm, I'm guessing in 1918, they even knew that, but you didn't have people who were writing in to oppose it or to try to boycott media because of those messages. Right. Um did you see then other villains emerge? Obviously, there has been some talk during this pandemic. There's mm -hmm. been blame spread around different countries. China should have done something earlier. Europe did something earlier. Did you see anything about uh, maybe foreign adversaries that emerged? Absolutely. In 1918, uh, it's really interesting because the coverage, of, of course, during World War One, um, kind of clumped together both the virus and Germany. So there was a lot of of different statements that reinforce Germany is our enemy, but we're also fighting influenza. And by fighting influenza, we are fighting Germany and we will triumph over the enemy. So particularly during war, we see a, kind of a clustering or an othering, I would say, of disease uh, with kind of a, a hostile entity. And I'd like to get your perspective on some of the news coverage you've seen during this pandemic now that you have that sort of expert expertise, but mm -hmm. looking at the changes over the centuries, what would you say are some of the things that really were highlights to you of, wow, how stark the journalism changed maybe and mm -hmm. how they covered these different outbreaks over the centuries? Were there certain narratives that were different or just the way stories were written about it changed? Mm-hmm. Uh, so one thing that really struck me was 1793, and, and I talk a lot about that one because that really was a really interesting epidemic to me, uh, and there's so much available. So one thing that was really interesting to me was were all the different opportunities for regular people to write in and contribute to the newspaper um, and, and write in not just with their own experiences with disease, but also their own uh, kind of ideas about treatments and ways to prevent the spread of disease. I, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, and that's not something that I saw as uh, as constant in the later epidemics, uh, where you got a lot of participation from regular people, at least getting to weigh in on how do we prevent and, and, and cure disease, even though now that's come back, right? With, with social media, People say whatever they want, uh, and which can be sometimes, unfortunately, taken as fact. Uh, so that was one thing that I noticed. 
Um, I also noticed that, again, that difference between local and national coverage or even parts of the country affected. So with tuberculosis, uh, the media coverage that came out of Colorado, especially Colorado Springs, was, wasn't pro-tuberculosis, but it definitely uh, reflected on tuberculosis as kind of a way of life or something that you can live with and be successful with because most of the residents did have tuberculosis or they had family members with the disease. Compared, if we look at New York coverage uh, at the same time of the same disease, um, was very science-driven. Um, was very much written from the perspective of a public health authority, treated people with tuberculosis uh, in, in such a way that they should not be part of society. And we can think about like the sanitarium movement and how that fit in. Uh, so even at the same time, uh, in uh, you know, the same time we saw different papers covering the same disease in very different ways, depending on who was writing what was going on in, in this moment. Well, and then as you look at that evolution continue to what we're seeing in mm -hmm. the current pandemic, uh, what are some things that stand out to you in way maybe, again, those narratives are changing, the mm -hmm. heroes and the villains, anything else about the way the journalism has uh, covered this? Well, what strikes me so much about the current pandemic is this tremendous division between people who believe that it's a serious health crisis that's killing thousands of people and people who either seem to think that it's over or who, who think that it's a hoax or exaggerated by media. I mean, there's such a fragmentation and a division between the two groups in a way that I've never seen in, in historical epidemics. Uh, no one in 1918, I don't think, would have written in a mainstream newspaper, would have been published saying influenza is not a big deal. What are we doing? Right. I, I don't see that. And uh, certainly not from the government. Uh, um, I've never known... Uh, other government officials to at least publicly on record in these different epidemics that I studied to really downplay a an epidemic. Sure. Uh, that's something that we're definitely seeing in stark relief right now. And I guess even yeah. when you're looking at letters to the editor back then, there weren't too many of those second guessing the common media narrative or attacks on the right. media the way that we see mm -hmm. today. Well, and people didn't question disease back then in the same way that we tend to now, since so many people have forgotten that these experiences existed, that uh, disease, you know, used to, and right now is, again, shape every single part of your life and every day. I mean, it wasn't uncommon to have to take a couple weeks off of school because you came down with an infectious disease because it happened so often. Mm. Uh, so to question disease back then would have just been absolutely absurd. Sure. Well, we thank you again for all of your perspective that you provided today. And before you go, we always end mm -hmm. the podcast with the same question I'd like to pose to you now. Why mm -hmm. does journalism history matter? You can answer it in the context of the research you've done or just mm -hmm. in a broader sense. But why do you think the history of journalism matters? Well, we have to stop forgetting what happened in the past uh, so that we can prepare for the future. And I don't think... Uh, anything, any bigger reminder could have possibly happen rather than our moment right now. It's telling us why journalism history matters. Sure. Your research shows us a kind of a path forward. And I think there's a lot of positive things that emerge from your research, as we talked about earlier, the infrastructure improvements, healthy behaviors that maybe will become more common after we pass through this. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Katie, for taking the time to talk to us today on the Journalism History Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciated our conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, and additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor & Francis.
Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. Thank you.